0: We are grateful that in your grace you've given us a book to uh, explore and press our hearts into, Father, so that we would be more like Christ. And today we're looking at prayer, we're looking at how the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate prayer to the Colossian church 2,000 years ago, and there's something in this book, something in this letter for us today, for each of us today. And so my prayer, Father, is that by your grace you would come and you would apply that reality, whatever it is, Father, to our hearts, that we would come to see you with more clarity and that we would feel more given to steadfast prayer, seeking the glory of God and joy in the people who you brought around us. So I ask you in the name of Jesus Christ that you would do this. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, please grab them, open them to Colossians 4, 2, chapter 4, verse 2. So it, it brings me great joy today uh, to tell you that tomorrow is our one year, and it would be our one year anniversary in this building, it, it, which is pretty awesome. And it would also be our one year anniversary going through the book of Colossians. And, and really, this is one year, in my, in my view, of God's faithfulness and his grace and his love and his commitment um, in, in your families and in my family. And uh, I just want to say, at this point, one year into our time together in this building, uh, I'm grateful for you guys. I love you guys. I'm I'm so happy and thankful to God that you guys are part of uh, my family's life. And my prayer really is that in the coming year, God would continue his faithfulness in us by taking the joy and the fellowship we have, which is, I'm going to be honest with you, it's a little unique. Uh, there's a lot of churches out there, and some of them have this. A lot of them don't. And I'm really just, I, I appreciate that God in his grace has given us a kind of fellowship and a, a community that that I, I just adore. And, and my prayer is that uh, that God would take that and spread it in Kingsgate, in other neighborhoods, in um, our workplace, that people, whether they come here or whether they come to another community, that they would come to know Jesus Christ and his people Uh, and they would enjoy the joy that we have. And I'm also excited, even though I love the book of Colossians, I'm excited to get towards the end of this book and go in new places. In the next few months, we'll be doing stuff. In fact, two weeks, we're going to have a little mini-series outside of Colossians. But um, I think one of the things you'll see here is that as Paul gets to the end of this book, he starts to revisit themes and ideas and concepts that he introduced at the beginning of the book. And today's prayer... Next week is mission. These are not foreign ideas. If you've been with us for the last year, you've seen these come up before. And um, my hope is really that over the past year, our view of God has grown. Our idea of who God is has grown. We've seen the supremacy of Christ. We've seen um, the depth of God's gospel and his grace. And um, my hope is that Uh, that what we've seen over the last year will fuel, and as we look at these closing uh, verses, will fuel a new understanding, a new lens through which we see these things like prayer. We now have a bigger view of God. We now have a bigger view of what the gospel is. And uh, so that's my prayer. As we go to these closing verses in the coming weeks, that we have a lens that shows us who Jesus is in relationship to our prayers and who Jesus is in relationship to our mission and our purpose And so let's see what Paul has for us today. We just got three verses, starting with verse two. This is what Paul says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So over the past few weeks, we've been in a series that we've called Chosen Ones. And the reason we're calling it that isn't just arbitrary. Paul uses that title in Colossians 3.12, where he says, Put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and then he lists off, he rattles off a list of things, basically, that are instructions for those who belong to Jesus. You belong to God, you're his people, this is what really governs your life. These are the, the realities that govern your life and all of your human relationships. And we saw how that affects how we act in church, how that affects how we act in, in community, how that affects how we act in marriage. And in families, and last week David took us into the workplace, how does belonging to God affect and engage your workplace environment? And Paul has just a few closing lines as we get to the end of this book. We're in the last chapter. Just a few more closing lines that he has, and he's not going to spend these frivolously. He's not wasting. None of these lines will be wasted. They will all be saturated with things that we need to get from them. And um, what he's about to say about prayer is really important. So if you've been with us for the past year, you know that at the beginning of this letter, uh, we actually see Paul engage prayer. We see him engage. This is not the first time that he's talked about prayer. In fact, we had an entire series in the first chapter called Prayer Unceasing. Do you guys remember that? Anybody remember that? Nobody remembers that. I'm the only one that remembers it. daniel has got it. You got it, bro. Okay. So we got one person who remembers. But we had a series called Prayer Unceasing, and you'll find that Paul... There, um, here is commanding the Colossians to pursue God, and it reflects the way in which he, he, pr- he prayed and where he displayed his prayers for the Colossian people. How he's already told them he's praying for them, he wants them to emulate. Now, for example, listen to this line in chapter one. This is, this is from the series almost a year ago. And for from the day we heard, Colossians 1.9, we have not ceased to pray for you. This is Paul. To the Colossian Church. So he's saying he and his people, those people who are on mission with him, have not ceased from the first day that they heard about the Colossian Church, that there are believers here, have not ceased to pray for the Colossians. And he refers to this as unceasing prayer. This is Paul's view of Christian prayer. That it's not simply a one-and-done, that it, it it is something where he is constantly lifting up the needs of the Colossians to God. And what he's about to do in Colossians 4 is take those concepts from the beginning of the book and now apply them in the fourth chapter to the Colossians, to the people who are receiving this letter. And to be honest, he's applying this to us. These are imperatives that run 2,000 years from his parchment all the way into our lives today. He's applying them to us. If you belong to God and he has shown you his love, and his faithfulness from before the foundation of the world by causing in your heart to arise a love and a trust in him, this is how we are called to pray. This is how he's called us to pray. And he goes into detail. There are actually three different dimensions that he has in these three verses that we're going to explore. Three different aspects of prayer. Here they are. The first is he engages frequency of prayer. The second is the direction of prayer. And the third is the ultimate reason for prayer. So first is frequency. Second is the direction of prayer. How, how do we direct our prayers? And the third is, what is the ultimate purpose of prayer? Why does prayer exist ultimately? And that's what we're looking at today. So we've already seen him pick up on the first one. This is the frequency of prayer. Paul says in Colossians 4, if we could go back to Colossians 3, the text that we were just reading. Sorry, I'm changing it up. Uh, uh, Paul says, uh, continue steadfastly in prayer. And in Colossians 1, he says of himself, we have not ceased um, to pray for you. So obviously he's not saying this is all we ever do. We, We only pray, 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 pray. We don't do anything else. He's writing the letter here. That's not what he means. But what he does mean here is that when I pray, the Colossians do not slip my mind. I pray for you. Every time I get on my knees, I pray for you. And this, Colossians, this is how you are to pray. You should pray steadfast and you should refuse to give up no matter how long it seems to take. Now, why is this the case? How does this fit? How does this idea of steadfast prayer fit with our view of God. How do we understand God in this? We have an omniscient God. We have an omnipotent God. Um, why unceasing prayer? Why would Paul put an emphasis on this? I mean, if God's sovereign over all things, that's what it means to be omnipotent. Why does he even need prayer to begin with? He knows what we need. Why, why, why continual prayer? Why steadfast prayer? And the reason this question exists is because we, even as Christians, tend to think that prayer um, is for God, That that we pray so that he knows something, that we're doing it so that he'll know that we have a need and we need him to answer it. But Jesus actually says this is not true. This is not why prayer exists. God already knows your need well before you ever say a prayer. Now the world prays as if God has no clue what's going on. And you gotta get him into the, this is what my problem is, God, please help me. But we don't pray like that. Christians don't pray like that. For example, Jesus in Matthew 6 um, says this, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So he's saying here, prayer length does not determine whether or not God will hear you. It has nothing to do with the, prayer, the length of prayer or the quality that you think your prayer is expressing. Your Father knows what you need already, even before you say a single word. Even if you don't know what to ask. Even if you don't know how to ask it and you're asking for the wrong things. He knows what you need. And what this tells us is that there's something profound about prayer, namely that it has more to do with God doing something in us than it does with him getting an understanding of what we need in our lives. And so we are called to continue in prayer steadfastly. Now, why? Why then, if that's the case, are we called to steadfast prayer? Well, in Luke 18, we have an interesting parable Um, Luke 18, 1 through 8, tells us this. This is from Jesus. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So what, what is the reason for this parable? When we get a parable like this, what, what would be the reason for it? And Jesus actually says, or Luke says, provides context why Jesus told this parable. He says, this parable was told so that they, the people who were listening, would not lose heart. That's his goal. Jesus does not want them to lose heart. It says, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so he tells them this story, as Jesus often does. He tells them a parable about this persistent widow, and this widow needs justice. This widow's been, uh, some injustice has been done to her, and she refuses to give up. She is constantly bothering this unrighteous judge until he finally relents and says this line that I love. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That's his response to her. I'm going to, I relent. What do you need? She doesn't stop until she gets justice. She refuses to stop until her request is answered. And Jesus is telling us, this is how you pray. This is how you pray to the righteous judge, God. We don't give up. If what we're asking is pure, if what we're asking is good and right, God is honored in us clinging to it and not letting go until the prayer is answered. And our praying isn't so that he would hear us or understand what we need. Our praying is so that we would not give up, that we would believe God will meet every single need. And this fuels our faith in God. This fuels our trust in him. And let me show you how it does that. Jesus, at the end of this passage, says something very weird and interesting. He says, in explaining the parable, will not God give justice to his elect? That's eclectos, chosen ones. Same thing as in Colossians. Will he not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. And so right now, imagine you're there 2,000 years ago, you're listening to Jesus say this, you have a choice. The people who are hearing this parable are faced with a question, do you believe what Jesus is saying? Do you believe him when he says that God will give justice to his elect speedily? Do you believe and trust what he's saying? This isn't a question of God's goodness, but it is a question of whether or not we believe him, whether or not we will wait on him to make this happen, to meet our needs. Do we trust him? And we know this isn't about his faithfulness, but rather it is about our faith because of what Jesus says next. He says, nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Such a strange thing to say. He's just told this parable about this persistent widow who doesn't give up, refuses to give up, and now he says, will there be faith on earth when I come back? When I, the Son of Man, come back, will I find faith on the earth? And the reason he says this is because he's pressing them with the reality of not giving up, to continue to hang on to God, no matter if it feels like he's silent, no matter if it feels like he's not there, I will refuse to let go. I will refuse to let go. That's what he's referring to when he says faith on, the, on earth. And so you see, Jesus knows that he will bring justice one day on earth. He knows that his Father will hear the prayers of the elect and will respond. It may seem long to us, but in the entire scope of Things. It will be very quick, very speedily. This command to pray by Jesus is not a command for God's benefit. It is a command for our faith that we would respond and trust. Jesus is saying, Don't don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep trusting. He is fighting for us in this passage through the parable for us to not give up for us to cling, trusting into God. And for those who are his, for those who belong to Jesus, he will not give, he will not stop fighting. He will not stop fighting. He will fight and he will not lose that fight, which is why we are called to continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't let go of God. Don't stop trusting him. And that's the first paradigm in the three that are in these verses, that are. Frequency of prayer is constant and steadfast. We are always trusting in God. Now, the second is this. Remember what you said? Direction of prayer. What is the direction of prayer? Another way to ask this question is, who do we pray for? When we pray to God, who are we praying for? Do we just talk about ourselves or do we pray for others? In Colossians 1, months ago, we looked at how Paul was praying explicitly for the Colossians to know God and to show him in word and deed. To know who God was and to show him. And in Paul's mind, there is nothing more important for a Christian to pray for. When it comes to the Colossians, when it comes to any believer, this is it. This should be our prayer for ourselves. This should be our prayer for our friends. This should be our prayer for everyone, that they would know God. There's nothing more important than that in the world. Nothing more important than that. And I say that with certainty, that they would know God, and that they would show him. This is why we exist. But here in Colossians 4, he has something else that he wants them to pray for. It's not just that. He has something else that he wants them to pray for. Don't just pray for yourselves and for those immediately around you, but Paul says, pray for me. Listen to verses 3 and 4, Colossians 4 3 through 4. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So Paul's saying, pray also for us. Pray for for me and the people that are with me in this mission. Don't let your steadfast praying be just inward. Don't let it focus myopically on yourself, but pray for us. And he means everyone who's fighting with Paul on the front lines to spread the gospel. And he says specifically here, pray for me that God would open a door for us to preach the word. That's what he needs most. He needs a door to be opened and he's asking for them to pray. Open a door, God, for the word, which he calls the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. That should sound familiar with you if you were here a few months ago. Colossians 1.25 explains to us what the mystery of Christ is. Why use that language here when talking about spreading the gospel? Why don't I just say gospel? Well, Paul wants to make it clear. It is, it, the gospel, the word gospel, means more than simply what we would think of. Listen to what he says in Colossians 1, 25 through 27. Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given uh, to me for you to make the word of God Fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, this is the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. That's the word that Paul's referring to in Colossians 4. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The only hope for the world is Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. Knowing him, loving him, receiving him in faith as your treasure, trusting in his work on the cross, that is the gospel. And that's the only hope for this world. And it results in this glory hope of glory, which is the resurrection. So all of these things are unpacked when Paul says mystery of Christ. And this is everything to him. This is everything to Paul. This is his life. Think about it. He says right here that his declaring of this word has cost him his freedom. He says, on account of which I am in prison. He's talking about the word. He preached the gospel and they put him in jail. He's imprisoned right now. And he's writing this letter from some sort of prison cell or shackled because he proclaimed Christ. And guess what he wants to do next? All he wants to do right now is do it again. He wants freedom so that he can do it again no matter the cost. And if I can be real with you, this is how I want to think. What Paul's thinking here as he writes this, when someone asks me, how can I pray for you? When someone says, how can I pray, with you, pray for you? This is what I want to be first, foremost on my mind. That Paul in a jail, locked away for Jesus, wants nothing more for the door to be open. Not so that he can go on vacation. Not so that he can go into hiding. Not so that he can take a break, but because he wants to do it all over again. I want to preach the gospel, even if it sends me back into prison. And then he elaborates. He actually gives us specifics, which is really helpful. In verse four, he says, when I declare the word, pray for me that I may make it clear as I ought, which is how I ought to speak. Now think about this. Paul is not praying for safety. He's not saying, you know, you pray for my safety, Colossian church. He's not praying for a winsome personality in speech. He's not praying for convincing arguments and apologetics to really run circles around these people, unbelievers. He says he doesn't need any of those things. If you're going to pray for me, I just need to speak the truth of the gospel clearly. That's powerful enough to do this. He's not worried about convincing anybody. He's not worried about offending people. He knows he's going to offend people. That's why he's got chains on his hands right now. His main concern is the truth of the gospel. His main concern is that he would be Clear, and that his fear in preaching the gospel, or his desire to be liked by others, would not twist the message that he has, would not make it into something that it's not. Are you like? I'm familiar with this fear, the fear that he's praying, he's having the Colossians pray against right now. I am familiar with this every day of my life. I want to be liked. I want to be accepted, and that winds its way into my speech. And corrupts the truth of the gospel. And Paul's saying, "When you pray for me, pray that God would declare His grace clearly through my mouth." He says something very similar in Ephesians six. It's often helpful to look at an almost identical sort of prayer um, that he prays to people just a few hundred miles west, and to see, how does he phrase this now? What is, he, what is, what is the, the sort of comprehensive view that Paul has of this kind of prayer for boldness and for clarity? Listen to what he says. He says to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in, the opening, uh, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the same thing that he's saying to the Colossians, that words may be given to him in the opening of his mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This is his life, no matter the cost, which for Paul will be massive one day. It is already, but it will be massive one day. He's saying, when you pray for me, What I need most is not a break from the stocks. It is not a break from getting beaten by a rod. It is not my own freedom. What I need most is to be able to speak boldly and clearly the message of Jesus Christ, the word. Nothing else is important. And so let me turn this inward a little bit. Is this how we pray? When we go to God and we're on our knees, do we think of these things? And I'm not saying that prayer for other things is unimportant. Make sure that you hear that. We should pray for health. We should pray for safety. We should pray for God to meet our personal needs. He can do that. He wants to hear from us. But do we give considerable prayer to this, that the word would be proclaimed? That we would have this unashamed boldness about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because that's what Paul's asking for here pray for me that the gospel will be declared boldly and clearly as I ought to speak. Which brings us to the third point of the Colossians passage, the third point of Paul's command in Colossians. What is the ultimate purpose of prayer? We've looked at some secondary purposes of prayer. What is the ultimate purpose of prayer? We've already said that we're not telling God something he doesn't know. So one of the reasons we have prayer isn't so that we're informing him, God, get on the same page as me, but so that we would lay hold of him and believe him, that he can answer the prayer. We put our lives into his hands and we refuse to lose heart no matter what the circumstance looks like. But is that the ultimate purpose of prayer? Our faith in God? Is that where it ends? Is that like God's goal is faith in him and then that's where it ends? For it to be tested, for it to be grown? That is a purpose of prayer, but that is not the ultimate purpose purpose of prayer. Paul, in this passage, shines a very brief light on the ultimate purpose of prayer when he says, in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful in your prayer with thanksgiving. What does he mean by that? Watchfulness with thanksgiving, which is another way of saying, Listen, when you're praying, be ready to give God thanks. Be ready and willing to give God thanks for this. And why do we do that? Well, the first reason is because we believe that he's going to answer the prayer. We believe that he will answer our prayer, and we believe that he will answer our prayers because over and over and over and over in Scripture, it says that. It says specifically that. For example, I'll give one example. I had a variety of them here, but for time, I'm only going to show one. John 14 verses 13 13 through 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, Jesus says, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, he says, I will do it. This is, you can't get more clear than this. Our prayers will always be answered. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to get what we want all the time. That doesn't mean that we're going to get exactly what we want or what we think is right is actually right or good for us. But it does mean that we will always get what we need. We will always get what we need. And our Father knows better than we do what we need. And so Paul is saying, you need to be, when you pray to God, be expectant that he will meet your needs. Be watchful in prayer and ready to thank God for his kindness to you. And I think a lot of times we as Christians tend to think prayer as being a genie in the bottle sort of situation. We hear a verse like this and we're like, okay, that makes sense. So I just get my Bible out. Boom, okay, I need a new car. I need my tuition paid for. I need a better job. And that God is there basically to meet our needs and give us what we ask for. And we don't recognize that we don't generally know what our needs are. Not as good as God does. We don't. And when they're not answered in the way that we think that they should be answered, we tend to become ungrateful when, in fact, he's giving us exactly what we need. And we also don't tend to recognize or reflect on the fact that whatever we do receive from God, we actually don't deserve We don't deserve it at all. We don't deserve for any prayer to be answered. We haven't, and I'll speak for myself, I have never done anything that deserves for my prayers to be answered by an omnipotent God. In fact, I think if we're honest with ourselves, our lives are often defined by discontentment in God and by discontentment in His design for us, where He's got us right now. I just want to be At the next step, I just want you to open the door. I just want you to give me this. That's discontentment. He doesn't have us there right now, He's got us somewhere else, and He has a purpose for us being there. And we tend to ignore God unless we do need something from Him. That's the default disposition. And yet, amazingly, Jesus looks into a crowd of people who act the same way that we do think the same things we do, have the same discontentment that we do, and he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the reason he says that 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 happens is for his Father to be glorified, that my Father may be glorified, which is at the heart of what we're reading in Colossians when we think about thankfulness, watching it in thankfulness. Think about what Paul's saying. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Be ready to thank God for the answer he's going to provide you in the prayer, through the prayer, and be ready to praise him and magnify him and glorify him who gives to us freely though we do not deserve it, though we have not earned anything from him. This is the ultimate purpose of prayer. There isn't anything beyond this that we would look to as being the main purpose, the glory of the Father. Gratitude and worship for God is why prayer exists ultimately. Every other reason we can think of for the purpose of prayer serves this reason. This reason is the main reason that God in Christ Jesus would be magnified for contentment in his people when he provides their needs. Not because he gives us what we want every time. Not because he gives us what we want every time. Most times he does not give us what we want. He actually gives us what we need. He supplies every need and he will meet every need according to what Jesus says here. And think about this. Prayer helps us see him do this. Answer the prayer. Give us what we need. And it helps us love him for it. And if we did not have prayer, that would be impossible. How would we be able to? Prayer is the, the architecture of experiencing thankfulness for his provision and loving him more for it. Look at uh, what Paul says in Philippians 4 here. This is probably my favorite verse on this subject. Philippians 4:19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God has promised, if you are in Christ, to provide every need. And he doesn't do it according to how good we are. He doesn't do it according to how awesome we are. He does it according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a second. His provision for us in every single prayer that you've ever prayed, every single met need that you've ever had, that we should expectantly respond to with thanksgiving, God withdraws from his infinite storehouse of glory to provide that. He draws from, according to his riches in glory, from his power and his beauty. Have you ever considered that? That in order for God to grant us prayers, it needs to come from a place. That provision is not just, doesn't even pull it out of thin air. Every single prayer that we make is answered through this. His power, his glory And this is God's promise to us through Paul in this text. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory, which tells us a few things. First, it tells us we can trust him. Even if we don't get the answer we want, we know that he has us in his hand. We can believe him and we can take this promise and we can go to him like the persistent widow and say, I need this, I need this, I need justice, I need this, I need you to help me here never giving up, never stopping, constantly going to him because we know he will supply all of our needs. And he doesn't do this because we're awesome. He doesn't do this because we're killing it. He doesn't this. He does do this because we earned anything from him. He does this because he loves us and he draws from the greatest storehouse in the universe his own value, his own glory, his own worth. But if you're even remotely aware... Even remotely, aware of God's infinite worth and glory, in our relatively, in relative to Him, lack of glory, our unworthiness, I have just, in what I've told you, created a massive problem for us. I wonder if you've seen it. If God, in loving us, gives unworthy and undeserving people everything they need, How exactly is that right? That discontented people get what they need. How is that just? We're guilty of sin, and we tend to be addicted to anything but God. That's what Romans 1 tells us. Yet he promises here that he will supply every need and that he's not just going to supply it with with spare parts. He will withdraw from his storehouse of glory and give us what we need. Now, I don't think we feel the weight of this, so I'm going to try to do, draw a picture here, and hopefully this isn't offensive or scary for anybody here in the room. <laughs> this picture won't be hard for some of you to imagine. Imagine that a gunman walks into a school and shoots people, and maybe kills 50 people. Imagine that. You can read a headline and see that. Imagine that he walks out and he is arrested by the police and he's brought before a judge and now imagines that the judge hears all the evidence against him and it is very clear, open and shut case, video, all of it. That man is guilty. He's the one who did it. He's admitting it openly. And the judge looks at him and says, you know what? Well, I really like you. I like you. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you go free. I'm going to let you go free. And here's here's also what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you anything you want on the city's dime. Anything you want. You just ask me for it and I will give it to you. Anything you need, anything you want, it's yours. Now, no one hears that story and says, that's right. That's good that he did that. No one hears this story and says, I'm okay with that. Now, why is that? Because we know this man is guilty and he should be held accountable. He should be punished. Killing people, especially children, killing children is worthy of a lifetime of punishment at the very least. And we say that because we value human life. Rightly so. We value human life and human life should not be taken. But when you realize that the value of human life is not self-originating, it didn't come into being de novo. It is not self-originating. It came from someone. It was endowed by someone, and that someone is actually the source of all value, all worth in the universe. It is the living God. Everything has value because of him. And without him, it has no value at all. And while this tragedy should rightly cause us to mourn and justice should be sought, like we can feel justice rising in our hearts when we think of things like this. When we think about God, do we feel like that same way? No one really gives a rip that the God of the universe is ignored every single day and treated as garbage. No one's really shed any tears over that generally speaking, no one's been bothered by the the fact that the very one who gives life and breath and everything and value and worth to all human beings is treated as a mere fiction by much of the world. Have we considered that? That he's relegated even in Christian circles to the corner of our life like a genie. We need you, God. Can you come over here and help out? I'm saying all this to hold out the fact that we don't deserve this good God. We don't deserve him. We don't don't deserve who he is. We deserve, as the Bible tells us, to be separate from him forever, to be eternally separated from, from him forever. Because although we would mourn the value of human lives, finite human lives, which we should, we care very little, generally speaking, for the value, the infinite value of the God who sustains every molecule in the universe and holds reality together so we can even have thoughts about who he is. So what gives, this is the question, what gives Jesus the right to promise us that God will answer every prayer? Where does he get the right to say that? How in the world can Paul say, my God will supply every need, all of your needs. And to do that, he will withdraw from his own infinite worth, which is being disregarded and forgotten. How can he answer prayers according to his immeasurable riches and glory if we're really like that? We don't deserve it. Romans 8.32 answers this question. Listen closely to how, what Paul says about God. Paul says, 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, he's talking about God, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, think about this sentence. It's one sentence in the Bible, changes everything, changes everything. The answer to the question, how Jesus has a right to say that, or how Paul can say that, is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, on the the cross, God gave us the greatest thing possible, his own son. There is nothing in the universe more valuable than Jesus Christ. Nothing. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. It all belongs to him. Every molecule and every breath is his. For by Christ all things were created. This is Colossians 1 that we're that I'm reading here. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and they exist for him alone. Christ was before all things and it is only in Christ that all things hold together. This is what the book of Colossians tells us about Jesus. He has immeasurable value, immeasurable value. And his father, let me tell you this right now, God the Father loves Jesus more than anything in existence. He loves his son. He loves his son. And yet somehow This verse in Romans 8 is true. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, if you've noticed this, this, when he says all things there, this is an argument from the greater To the lesser, in giving us his son, in paying for our sins and our dishonor to him on the cross, by punishing them in Jesus Christ, God loses the greatest thing in the universe. There is no loss like this. And we bring to God our needs, so we know what loss is to some degree, but we do not yet know what loss really is if we don't know this. This is loss. This is loss. God gave him up for us all. He let go of the most valuable thing in the universe, his precious son. And then he crushed him so that we would not only be forgiven of our sin that's massive, that's huge but that when we ask him anything, he will give it to us. Every need provided for undeserving sinners. That's not free. That cost something. It cost God everything. He didn't pull that out of thin air. He had to pay for it with the most valuable thing to him, his own son. We get nothing. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, we get nothing. We get nothing. But if he does, we get nothing everything. That's what this verse is saying. We get all things. Every answered prayer was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So this week as a people, when we get on our knees and when we ask God to do something in our lives, whatever it might be, big, small, doesn't matter, any of those things, when we ask him to fight for us, we need to think very hard about this verse and about what it cost him. We need to think very hard about the cost to God, and does what I'm asking him, and it may, it may not, does what I'm asking him ultimately serve to magnify his name? And I say that knowing that I am speaking right now into, in our church body, into a sea of pain and brokenness. I know that. I know some of the problems that are are being faced here. I know this Broken health, broken relationships, broken lives. But here's the deal that we have. If you're in Christ Jesus, I can say this confidently. My God will supply all of your needs and he will do this according to his immeasurable riches of glory in Christ Jesus by the matchless blood of his son. He purchased for you those needs and we need to believe him. We need to trust him because he loves you deeply, more than you can possibly imagine. Let's pray. Father God, it is unquantifiable the cost that you endured when you broke your son on that tree so that all of the things in us that do not want you could be muted and so that your grace could flood into our lives and take broken hearts and make them into beams of light into a dark world. Make them into instruments of your grace in lives across this planet, Father. And so my prayer right now, Father, is, is not only for the body of believers here, that we would know you, that we would love you, that we would pursue you, that we would trust you in our prayers. But Father, for other churches around us, other fellow workers like Paul, when he asked the Colossians to pray for them. Father, for our Redeemer down the street, Pastor Schultz, and the, those families there represented by our Redeemer. And for Reach and Kirkland and Everett, Father, and Reunion and Seattle, these other churches that we know of, and any other churches, Father, bring them to our hearts. I pray that you would use them to boldly and clearly declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would embrace the glory of God with such a passion and a fervency that they would be willing, that we would be willing as a people, Father God, to endure shame, to endure loss, to endure criticism so that the word would be spoken clearly. And we know that when it is spoken clearly, Father, your Holy Spirit comes in and opens eyes. Your Spirit takes hardened hearts that are like rocks and makes them into beating flesh hearts that can live for the glory of God. So that's my prayer for us today, Father, that you would do this great work in our lives and in our brothers and sisters across this area, Father. May your name be magnified. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.